the National Archives podcast series, Galaxy Zoo and Old Weather, exploring the potential of citizen science, presented by Dr. Arfon Smith. I'm here to tell you a story today um, about how a group of astronomers, uh, myself included, ended up basically building interfaces that transcribe ancient, well, not ancient, well, actually, yes, ancient, I'll show you some ancient ones in a minute, but old records. Um, we started a project called Galaxy Zoo uh, in July 2007, and um, we, we didn't really know what we were doing when we started, and we, something amazing happened, and, and, and that's, I think, probably why I'm standing here today. Um, and we call our projects um, citizen science projects. So the citizen scientist is the member of the general public um, who is interested in what we're doing. And we build, we build projects, and Galaxy Zoo is one of them, and Old Weather's one that's a bit sort of uh, uh, closer to the National Archives' um, interests. So I'm based at the University of Oxford in astrophysics, um, and we, we've created this organisation uh, called the Citizen Science Alliance. It's a very grand name. Um, but basically, we've, we've said that as a group of uh, institutions, and there's six of us, um, that we're going to build projects for members of the general public to do real research online. So all of our projects are research-delivering uh, projects, and by that I mean academic research. So citizen science is becoming a semi-well-used term, I think, in, in the press. Uh, probably another term that people would use would be something crowdsourcing. Uh, volunteer computing is also um, a version of citizen science, so if anybody's ever seen the climateprediction.net computing program that you can run on your, on your desktop, that's, that's kind of citizen science. And, and so all of these things are uh, asking of people's time or their resources. And so, so Galaxy Zoo and, and, and Old Weather are, are no different, really, except that we, we ask people's brain cycles rather than CPU cycles on their machines. So it's subtly different. Um, coming from Oxford, I have to point out that the Oxford English Dictionary is the original crowdsourcing project. Um, we ask people for words, right? Send in your words and we'll make a, make a dictionary. So, so, I mean, this is, you know, the OED is crowdsourcing, I think. Other things like uh, the Big Garden Birdwatch run by the RSPB, this is crowdsourcing observations. So this is subtly different uh, from, what, from what we do, uh, where actually the, the members of the public are creating the data set. Uh, and actually feeding in observations of birds. And so this creates, um, and, you know, these people are citizen scientists. Um, what we do is more, more usually more um, sort of annotating existing data sets, so galaxies or existing records. But again, this is, this is a crowdsourcing or a citizen science effort. And again, there's an equivalent project in uh, the US called the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Um, I think this is crowdsourcing too. This is a project called Ushahidi. Um, this came out of... Um, the uh, political troubles in Kenya a few years ago. Um, there was lots of uh, ethnic violence going on and, and people were um, trying to figure out where medics needed to go, where the police needed to go, where were resources needed. And it started, uh, there was somebody who had a popular blog, and I, I'm not I'm very familiar with the story, but somebody was running a blog and they were in the comments in somebody's blog, they were collecting, you know, please go and help some people here. And the person who authored the blog just said, look, I just need some help. I need things put on a map, and I need somebody to help me do this. And a couple of developers in the US built this Google Maps-based um, uh, interface where you could basically, and it's now called the Ushahidi platform, and you can basically, and I think it was used when the Haiti earthquake happened as well, so you can basically upload things and tag them with locations and actually 
make a much better, uh, it basically makes crisis maps. Um, so I think this is you know, crowdsourcing people's time. So yeah, so the volunteer computing thing, I think probably the most famous example of this would be something like SETI at home, where they're searching for extra terrestrial signals in, in, in lots, of, lots of data from the uh, Arecibo telescope. And actually out of that came this whole project called Boink, which is a this distributed computing project. So if you have a, uh, something that you want lots of people to, uh, lots of people's desktop machines to crunch data with, then, then the Boink project exists for you to actually deliver, deliver uh, uh, work packages to people's machines. Um, some of you may be familiar with uh, Foldit, which is this protein folding game. This is, again is citizen science, I think. Um, these are, so this is a very large molecule, so we, you know, our body, all the kind of interesting things that happen in our body, or the complex chemistry that happens with these large, complex molecules. And, and the problem with molecules like this is that nobody knows how they fold. So they have what we call like an active state. Um, and so the state in which the actual electrochemical and the, the biological functions happen, we don't know. It's very hard to predict computationally what the active state of these molecules are. And so the Foldit game, and it is a game, you score points and you go up against other people in the game. The, protein, um, pro the Foldit game basically said, look, just try and fold them. And you can do it in your browser window. And um, about 75,000 people are active on this project. And the Foldit team, so the actual project, are the best protein folding group in the world. They're better than any academic researchers. Just had a Nature publication with 75,000 authors. Citizen science. <laughs> Um, and of course, so there's Galaxy Zoo. So this is Galaxy Zoo in its, origin, uh, in its, in its form today. Um, this is a picture of a galaxy. We ask people to answer simple questions about the galaxy. So, so all of these are kind of citizen science. So I'm just trying to set the scene there as to what, what I guess we think citizen science is. If you'll forgive me, I'll backtrack a little bit and tell you why we started Galaxy Zoo. Um, there was, I think, 2006, a mission called Stardust at home. Uh, which was the NASA Genesis mission. And this was, a, this was a satellite that went out into the solar system. And it flew through the tail of a comet. So this is a comet here in the artist rendition. And uh, basically, this thing here is uh, made of a material called aerogel. And uh, aerogel is this very porous gel-like material. And they, they flew through the comet tail and collected all these bits of the comet on the aerogel. And then on the way home, back to Earth, because this bit, this bit came back to Earth, um, they turned the aerogel round, and they just tasted the solar wind, so the stuff that's in between the planets. So nothing, there's not very much there, but there are occasional ones of these. So this is a millionth of a metre across the scale here. So this is very, very small. But this is the stuff that our solar system formed from. Formed from. So this is pre-solar material, stuff that our own sun formed from. So lots of this gas and dust, um, this, is what, this is what we all came from. And, and actually, they just realized they had the opportunity to collect some of these bits of um, stardust, effectively. And so, so, but the problem was a hard one. So this is the aerogel back in the lab. And they had to take millions and millions, well, hundreds of thousands of slices, fine slices through this aerogel. And for reasons that uh, are probably too boring to go into now. It was a very hard thing to do computationally to find these dust grains. So they asked people to do it. Uh, and they had a lot of images, and they got a lot of people. And they had 40 million inspections of those aerogel slices. And they found, I think, two dust grains, <laughs> which is amazing, right? But they needed all this effort. So 
This is awesome. This is, this, we just said, this is insane. We have, we, have, we have something else that we'd like people to look at. We have galaxies. And this is, um, this is very good timing for us. So this is back in 2007. This telescope was built. This is the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, robotic telescope. This is um, as significant an astronomical instrument as the telescope of Galileo. It's the, by far the most, had by far the most impact in astronomical research. Uh, there are probably five, 6,000 papers that cite this survey, so using the data from this survey. And, and, and if there are any physicists in the room, I'll apologize. Now, this is what happens when you let physicists build a telescope. Um, they, I, I'm determined to, uh, they were determined to kill off astronomy, I think. Look, let's just scan the whole sky and then we'll be finished. So they just made a robotic telescope and did it. And, and actually what happened was it produced a huge quantity of data. So this is uh, in, in, uh, um, in the US, so it can see the northern sky. But it scanned about a quarter of the northern hemisphere. Uh, and it produced, in, in one of the data releases, it produced about a million galaxy images. And, and, and we basically wanted to, to, to inspect them and, and see, what, see what the astrophysics was of these galaxies. Um, and at the time, we had a, we had a, a PhD student called Kevin Shavinsky. And actually, Kevin was interested in looking for, and I apologize for all the astronomy, but hopefully it's interesting. Um, he was looking for a particular type of galaxy. So this is, this is called the Hubble Tuning Fork. Um, and this is uh, how, how astronomers think of galaxies. So this was uh, worked out by Edwin Hubble. Uh, and Hubble thought, actually, that galaxies started this. Uh, no, sorry. He thought that you started here and you went this way. So he thought it was kind of an, an evolutionary diagram of galaxies, because he noticed there are these things called ellipticals, which are just kind of fuzzy, and then the spiral galaxies like our own Milky Way. And so, so, so the first thing an astronomer does when they see a galaxy image is they try and say what type of galaxy it is. And broadly, there's ellipticals and spirals. Um, there's also regulars, but because we don't understand them, we ignore them. Um, and so, so Kevin Shavinsky was looking for a particularly rare type of galaxy, so ellipticals that were blue. So the rule in kind of astronomy is that spiral galaxies are blue and ellipticals are kind of orangey-red. And Kevin was looking for spiral, uh, these, these blue ellipticals. And he looked through about 50,000 images in a month uh, from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey and pretty much said that that was enough, uh, which is quite reasonable, I think. Uh, and just to give you an idea of scale, if, if we went back 40 years in astronomy, um, when we were using photographic plates instead of uh, CCD cameras, then you might image 100 galaxies during your whole thesis. Uh, and your professor would classify them for you, and you know, you'd, you'd get your doctorate and everyone was happy. Uh, a recent paper, even four or five years ago, um, a team of astronomers would classify a collection of galaxies, maybe 10,000. That's a Kevin month, so Kevin's not an ordinary chap, as we can see. Um, and this is the scale of the Sloan data release. So there are a million galaxies, just this extraordinary number. And the important thing to realize is that, so we're fundamentally trying to split these from these. This is a hard computational problem. Um, you can do lots with computers these days, and you can do lots of good astrophysics with computers, but you don't get nearly as good a classification of the shape of the galaxy using a computer as you do with human effort. So the premier method for galaxy classification is still a visual one. So, so for that reason, it was a, it was a, uh, it was a, uh, a, a challenge for, for everyone to try and uh, go through the data set. So 
just a bit of background. So, what, you know, there were a number of research cases we had. We were looking for blue ellipticals, these unusual things. So, things that might not look very blue here, but 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 uh, they look blue to an astronomer. Um, and we were also <laughs> we were also trying to uh, answer this result, which was uh, there was a lady called Kate Land in the group in Oxford who was losing a lot of sleep over this very interesting result, which said that there were more galaxies spinning one way in the universe than the other way. And that should upset everybody in the room because the direction of the turn should just depend from which side you're looking. So, you know, when you think about the hundreds of billions of galaxies, we would expect pretty much an equal, in fact, a pretty much exactly equal split. Um, but there was something like a 2% excess in one direction, and, and this was... Kate was losing sleep over this. Kate works on how the universe forms, so this was worrying her deeply. So we had this, and we, we, had, a, we had a number of research questions that we wanted to ask. And so, so we built this website. It was called Galaxy Do. Um, and, and we asked a single question. We said, choose the galaxy profile by clicking the buttons below. So you got shown a galaxy. There's a little spiral galaxy here. And you got to say if it was a spiral, which direction it was turning. If it was an edge-on, if it was an elliptical, big button for ellipticals because there's so many of them, um, and, and whether it was a star, or in fact, actually, if it was a merger, so if there are two galaxies going together. So we launched Galaxy Zoo, uh, I think it was, hmm. yes, sometime early July 2007. We were on, very lucky to be on the, the Today program um, um, with John Humphreys, which was good fun for Chris, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, BBC Breakfast and all, all good stuff like that. And this is what happened. We, we, this is time since launch and classifications per hour. So we launch here and uh, we get to about three hours in and our server melted um, and somebody had to buy a new server and plug it in and then, and then you know, all that kind of drama. Um, and then within 48 hours, we were doing, well, let's put some units on. So here's a large survey paper. That's a Kevin month. So we were doing a Kevin month an hour. Uh, after, after launch, just these astronomical quantities of uh, classifications. And, and, yeah, and, and this is basically the, the reason that, 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 that we went on to do more. We have, we just, something, something happened. Some people thought that Galaxy Zoo was amazing and huge numbers of people contributed and, 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 and it turned out to just be a, a runaway success. It's worth just trying to explain briefly how you can compare or how do you get a good data set from lots of people classifying the same thing? And actually, our approach is pretty simple. So if this is the public, the non-expert, and our little green man there is the expert classifier, what we do is we actually just uh, ask our science team to classify a small number of the objects within Galaxy Zoo. And then we look for people who've classified the same objects as them, or some of the same. So if uh, the professional classifiers have classified maybe 100 or 200 or 1,000 objects, then there'll be some people in the community who have seen the same objects as them. And then you can basically do a comparison. So you can say, well, you know, member of the public, professional, classified the same object. Did they agree? Well, if they agree, then we can give this person a good score. But then we want to know about this person who hasn't had any overlap. But of course, there might be overlap between these two people for a different galaxy. So you can actually propagate a score for the individual through, through the data set quite easily. Um, and and it, it, I mean, it's, it's not trivial, but it, it, it does work. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the take home message. Uh, and in fact, the data set is better than a professional one. Um, and I will explain what I mean by that. Um, you get, it turns out, a richer data set than if you had a single classification by a professional astronomer. 
Um, there's many reasons not to want a professional classifier. Uh, for example, I said that astronomers think that spiral galaxies are blue. Well, if I see a blue galaxy, if I just see a blue image and it's a bit fuzzy, I'm, I'm more likely, I would say, to, say, to convince myself I can see spiral structure in that image. Whereas if, nobody, if somebody who knows nothing about the colour biases of galaxies just sees an image, they just do a, a, a more truthful, shall we say, classification of the image. So there's, you're not subject to any biases. But because in Galaxy Zoo we also have repeat classifications of the same object, you can start to say things like, how spiral is the galaxy? You know, how many people who saw that image said that it was a spiral galaxy? And so, for example, here, these are actually all mergers. So these are, these are all two galaxies colliding. We're going to be in a merger with Andromeda in about 300 million years or something. So, you know, we, we should worry about that soonish, I guess. But, but we, you know, we will, we will impact with another galaxy. And, and actually, that's how they think ellipticals form, that two spirals collide and you get this kind of just fuzzy glow of, uh, of, two, of two kind of burnt-out galaxies at the end. Um, but the clean sample here is where 80% of people said that these were, these were all spirals, uh, these were all mergers. And here, super clean is 90%. So you can start to kind of make interesting cuts of the data. And so, you know, Galaxy Zoo was the original project that we did. But, and, 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 and in that sense, I mean, it, it, in terms of how we analysed the data, it was quite original in that we did it on the web with members of the general public. But I think it's worth pointing out that we're really quite a traditional bunch in that we just write papers at the end. We don't really, we, you know, we're actually trying to be academics. It's just how we collect our data and analyse our data that's different from the people sitting next door to us in astrophysics. We just, you know, it's just normal astrophysics research that comes out at the end, but done in a kind of extraordinary way. I'm sure this is all bugging you, this result, this spinning galaxies thing. So I'll, I'll, tell, you, I'll tell you what we found out. Um, we found the same result. So um, this was even more worrying because we suddenly had uh, a very, very strong result that indeed there were more anti-clockwise spiral galaxies than clockwise, which raised a suspicion. And I don't know if anybody's ever seen this before. Um, so some people in the room will be seeing the dancer going clockwise and some people will be seeing her go anti-clockwise. And this is just, you can actually blink and it'll, it'll just start turning in the other direction. Turns out there's a bias in the human brain to see, I think, anti-clockwise more than clockwise. So the, the excess that we were seeing was not real. It was just one, it's just a, a limitation of the human brain, basically. And the way we showed that was we turned over a whole load of the images, we inverted them, and showed them again, and found the same excess in the same direction. So we were seeing, regardless of which way round we were showing them, there was still always the same excess. So it's not a real effect. So, so um, we can all sleep at, at night. Um, so Galaxy Zoo has had about 300,000 volunteers contribute their time. Between them, I really don't know the exact number. It's something around 200 million galaxy classifications we've had now. Um, and, and we could have just gone on. I mean, we, we're still doing Galaxy Zoo, and we... we, we there's a huge amount left to do in, in, in astrophysics, but in between the first and the second generation project, we did a survey of our community, and this was about 20,000 people responded. And there were lots of questions in the survey, but the one that, that we cared about most, I guess, was, was this one, and these are the responses to the question. So the, the question was, 
what is your primary motivation for contributing to Galaxy Zoo? And uh, there's lots of answers here. So I like science. I'm an astronomer, or I like astronomy, I think this was. I like the project. Uh, I'm interested in the scale of the universe. I'm a gamer. I, I'm an artist. Um, my teacher sent me, which was obviously not very popular in the classroom. Uh, I like to learn. But this one here, the, the, by far the most significant result, the answer that people selected there was, I'm interested in contributing to research, which was astonishing, I think. Um, we completely did not think that was the main motivation. We, I think going back to the press release that Oxford put out about Galaxy Zoo, it said something like, come and see galaxies that nobody's ever seen before. Because that's true. I mean, people have not, no human has ever looked at that image before. And we thought, that's amazing. You, know, you can see new galaxies, and people will think that's interesting. Or come and see beautiful pictures of galaxies. But actually, that's really quite uh, a sort of a, a shallow motivation, I think. Actually, it was a much more deep one. That the people who were most interested in the project thought that the research we were doing was interesting, which is just hugely humbling, but then also quite scary, because we suddenly thought, well, suddenly there's an onus on us to really, really do incredibly good research with these results that we're collecting. It also made us think, well, what else can we do? Um, so we created this home. This is our home for citizen science now. It's called the Zooniverse. This is a, a universe of zoos, if you like. Um, and we currently have eight projects. Um, and they're all web-based. You can all access them through your web browser. And you can do contribute to research uh, 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 through, through your efforts. Um, but the reason I think I'm here today is to talk about this one. And this, one, this was uh, a project we launched in late, uh, late last year. And this is a project called Old Weather. And a colleague of mine thinks this is the most boring title for a project ever. So I don't call it Old Weather. It's a brilliant name. I actually really like the name, so I won't take a poll. But, uh, but anyway, Old Weather is, is, is a, was a very different project for us. It was our first non-astronomy project. Um, and a guy I used to work with in uh, Nottingham who actually now works at Reading, he's a climate researcher these days, he said, look, there's this problem in climate science that they don't have, you know, they don't have enough data that goes back far enough. If you're trying to predict or if you're trying to extrapolate long-term trends in the climate, which I think we're all interested in, you need a long baseline of high-quality measurements of the weather. And we don't have them. You know, we have limited numbers, but we, we need more. And actually, this is, this is a log page from a record that's held here. This is from the AEDM 53 series. This is a logbook from the Royal Navy World War I uh, ships. This is HMS New Zealand. Um, an amazing thing about the Royal Navy is, and I think they're still doing it today, is that they record the weather six times a day. Uh, they record the wind, speed, direction, uh, a weather code, the pressure, uh, air and sea temperature, and just other comments. I mean, the thing about this logbook is this is actually the, uh, this is, I think this is the officer of the watch's log on the ship. But this is essentially the legal document for the legal record of what went on. So, so you have this weather, you have where they are, the date, the ship's name. But you also have, and, um, and for, for certainly we have some vessels in, in old weather that were, uh, for example, at the Battle of the Falklands. You have a record of the battle. How many people are in sick bay, how many tons of coal they have. Uh, how much fresh water. It's just a document of the daily life of, of what's going on board. So the reasons for us building Old Weather were primarily 
were primarily for climate research. And here's a, here's a sort of uh, explanation of why. So this is, um, this is an uh, image taken from uh, Google, Google Earth. Uh, and the points here are weather observations at all at the same time. So this is, this is October the 16th, 1987. I don't know if that was a big day for anybody. Um, but you can see that this is pressure. So you can see we've actually got a hurricane over the south of England that day. Um, and so with these weather observations, you can, and this is, what, this is what climate scientists do, they basically build a model of the climate and what the, what the, what the climate was doing that day. And so you, they call these reconstructions of, of the climate. And so they would do these for, uh, they, these are hugely expensive compu um, computer simulations that they run, but you need high quality data to do these. So this is the Northern Hemisphere, um, you know, UK centred here on uh, in 1987. If we go to the southern hemisphere at the same day, so this is now the same simulation, same point in time, but now we're over the southern oceans. And you can see here that there's you know, some weather observations, I guess, is it, I forget where the British stations are, but there'll be some weather observations from, the, uh, from, from uh, uh, um, weather, weather stations in the, in the southern hemisphere. But this, what they call the fog of uncertainty, which I think is a great, a great term, and um, this is basically where there's uncertainty in the model. So we don't really know what was happening here. So, so that's kind of, you know, interesting. But if we go back uh, 100 years, so this is now March the 8th, 1918. Again, we can see where we have weather observations. And again, this is a reconstruction of the, the, you know, the, what was going on in the Earth's uh, um, um, uh, atmosphere at that point in time. But now you can see this kind of fog of uncertainty even extends you know, into the North Atlantic. We don't really know what the weather was doing. If we go to the Southern Hemisphere on the same day, this is what it's like. We no, have no idea what the weather was like in the Southern Hemisphere 100 years ago. Um, literally, literally no idea. We have, we have some you know, records of um, 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 South America, but that's about it. And this is the, what the data from old weather looks like. So these are positions in time and where there's a weather observation, or in fact six weather observations, from these Royal Navy logs. So, so the amazing thing about old weather and these ships is they're basically mobile weather stations. And of course, you, know, you can see here that there's obviously lots. This is, this is the extended First World War. So this is 1913 to 1923. So you can see obviously there's lots of observations in the Northern Hemisphere. But then we can see there's stuff going through Suez Canal. We can see there's uh, lots of uh, ships going round to uh, you know, old sort of East India routes, but then there are some Southern Ocean stuff. But here we've got Battle of the Falklands, so presumably this is HMS Africa. Or was it Africa that went down there? HMS Invincible, I think. Um, but what we can do with old weather is we can actually take all these weather observations and feed them back into the simulation. So, so these weather observations are there. We just don't have a digital record of them. This is another, um, this is another uh, interface for the same data. So you can go to oldweather.org and just go to voyages and you can pick a ship. You can see here this is the color is actually the temperature. And we can see where the ship is. And you can kind of scrub through the date. And you can see basically what's been transcribed that day. So you can see here we're in Tuesday the 8th of December, I think. Out of range, ceased firing. I don't know who they're firing on, but obviously somebody they want to sink, presumably. Um, and uh, you, know, you can basically go through the logs and see, see, the, uh, see the history happening right there. Um, and, it, and it turns out to be this fantastically rich data set, not only for the, for the, for the uh, climate researchers, but both for the 
uh, both for climate researchers and, and, the, and the historians who are involved with our project. We thought, I thought I'd produce some quick graphics for today. So it's war, so I thought I'd search for happy and sad in the records. And you can see war is a sad time. Or maybe we could have predicted that already. Um, sports. I think it's kind of cool that there's as much dancing going on as there is boxing, which <laughs> I wouldn't have expected. So who knew? Um, and of course, it's old weather. So what was the weather doing? It's generally bad. But maybe, <laughs> maybe we knew that already. Um, so yeah, so old weather is, is citizen science. We're, you know, it's, it's very different for us from, from Galaxy Zoo, but it's, it's, it's transcribing these logs to provide not only historical value, but this rich, rich data set for climate researchers. Um, just wanted to show you a couple of other projects that we're doing. One is called Solar Stormwatch. This is with the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. This takes data from uh, a mission that's in space now called the Stereo Mission. And, uh, and actually what Stereo does is it looks at the space between the Earth and the Sun. And so in both of these, these are two videos here that play. In both of these videos, the Earth is here and the Sun is here. And so you see, so you can see this, basically the coronal mass ejection coming off the Sun's surface. You can see it going off here and we can also see it here. Because the geometry, if you see it in both, it means it's coming towards the Earth, which is, if, in, if we're uh, feeling good about that, that's just a nice auroral display in the northern lights, maybe. But uh, if we had a coronal mass ejection of the same size as I think happened in the 1920s, we'd blow out the North American power grid, because uh, these produce these massive distortions in the magnetic fields in the, in the uh, Earth's, Earth's uh, magnetic field. So we can, you know, and it just produces these massive currents in large large uh, grids. So, so this is a project that's asking people to basically measure the extent. So what you do here is you basically measure the position of the coronal mass ejection over time. And it's, again, something that's very hard to do reliably with computers, but people turn out to be fantastically good at. Uh, another project we have is called Planet Hunters. So there's a mission at the moment uh, up in space, a NASA mission called Kepler, which is staring at the same patch of sky um, for, uh, I, just, I think it's going to be up for about seven years, probably. Uh, and it's been flying for about two years so far. And Kepler looks at the brightness of about 300,000 stars, measures the brightness every 30 minutes, I think. And Kepler's looking for signs of planets around other stars. So this one's very obvious, but this is the brightness of the star here over time. And occasionally, you get these dips. And this is actually a planet. Around, the other st around this star that's basically passing in front of the star. And so you see this tiny, tiny dip, or in this case, quite a big dip. So this planet's probably a Jupiter-sized object or something bigger. Uh, but the exciting thing about Kepler is that we're learning that, well, we're learning that actually the Earth isn't that unusual. Um, there are lots of extrasolar planets. Until uh, a few years ago, we only knew of about seven. And since Kepler, we now know there's at least 1,200 we've detected so far. So Planet Hunters has been active for about six months. It had its six-month anniversary a few weeks ago. And we've so far, um, the people who have been looking at the light curves in Planet Hunters have found, I think, 50 planetary candidates. And that's all we can say, because it's actually very difficult to confirm uh, a, a real planetary candidate without lots more telescope time. But uh, the community has found almost certainly another 50 planets that the Kepler mission scientists hadn't, which is, which is fantastic. Um, our next project that we're launching is kind of similar to old weather, but different in a way. It's not going to be called Desert Papyri. It's going to be called something a little bit different. We haven't decided yet. That's why I can't tell you. Um, 
This is transcribing texts, character by character. This is ancient Greek. Uh, these are fragments of papyri from the lost city of Oxyrhynchus in northern Egypt. Um, and this is the largest collection of ancient Greek texts in the world, I believe. Uh, it's held by the Sackler Library in Oxford, and they have about two million fragments of papyrus. Um, and they've been transcribing them for 70 years now, um, three people, and they've just published volume 70, I think. So every year they publish a volume. And uh, I, you know, I, I love Oxford, but there's no other place in the world where they think that was a reasonable approach for going <laughs> through a large set of data. Uh, it doesn't matter that it's a 500-year project, I don't think. So, um, so we just realised that actually these texts are not readable to people, but the, the, the characters are legible. Um, and the Greek alphabet just isn't that big. Um, and so this project's launching this month, in fact, actually. Um, and so we're going to be inviting people to, and it, you know, it's hard, but we've, we, we've got some uh, good resources in the back end for what we're going to be allowing people to do is, is do a character-by-character character transcription and then kind of hit search. And we're going to be searching against indexes, large indexes. Papyri.info is one of the big indexes we're searching against. So you might kind of tap, 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 and click. Oh, it's Homer. Oh, you know, it's that kind of stuff. The point of this is that there are the earliest records of the Gospels of, of the Bible are in here. Uh, I think it's the Gospel of Thomas. It's the earliest doc, uh, written version of that is in the papyri. Um, and so we have this, there are almost certainly lost texts in here that we, you know, there are names of authors that we know, but we don't have any of their works. Um, and so there's a, there's a tremendous opportunity to find some very interesting stuff in here. There's also a lot of shopping lists and you know, commercial contracts, but that's kind of interesting too. You know, kind of, dear Bob, please send me three crocodiles, etc. that kind of thing. So, no, so we're going to be characterising both the characters on the fragments, but also um, turns out that because they're all bits, they basically come from a rubbish dump in, in, in Oxyrhynchus. Um, so all these fragments are broken up, but it turns out that the line heights and the margin sizes are very characteristic of the documents. So there's actually a very good chance that, so we're going to be asking people to measure the margins and, and, and the line heights, and there's a good chance that we're going to be able to actually piece some of these back together to actually form a larger document. So it's really, really exciting. So I just wanted to return to the motivations for our community of sisters and scientists and this plot. I think, I think, I mean, we spend a lot of time studying this and, and came to the conclusion that this was great and we, we, we really um, got warm, fuzzy feelings about having a community who saw value in our research. But it all may, also made us think, well, what, doesn't that mean there's sort of ethics behind crowdsourcing? I mean, we're doing, people are giving their time to us. We don't pay people any money. Hopefully, the... Uh, the un uh, 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 you know the, the the sort of hopefully the I think the contract between the community and us is clear that we are we will use the community's efforts uh, well and we won't ask them to do things that are useless scientifically or research-wise we won't waste people's time and so it's kind of a big statement but I believe there is and I think I think this is how we all think of it uh, in in the Zooniverse there's essentially a contract between us and the community and. And I, I think it's worth stating, stating what it is. And, and these are our kind of our rules that we apply to new projects. And this is, this, is, uh, this, is, this is three simple rules. But number one is that we treat our community as a community of collaborators and not users. And that means actually recognizing that original 
ideas come from the community, but also people's efforts should be credited at all times. So when we can, people are authors on papers. We have people writing papers where the first four authors are non-academics, people from the community. Um, but, but on all of our papers, there's a footnote on the first page which links to a, named, a list of all the names of the people who said that they would like to be credited on the project. Um, number two is that, and this is not a, I don't think these are the rules for crowdsourcing in general, but they're our rules um, for, for our projects. Um, number two is that people should be contributing to real research. So, I, I, you know, there are lots of good reasons for having people um, look at the old weather logs. There's lots of, there's lot, it, you know, it's nice to learn about the histories of these ships. But more than that, we have researchers who are interested in the histories who will be working on those, on those records, and also, of course, the climate research going on. So we didn't, we didn't set up the Old Weather Project just to let people look at logs. We didn't think that would just be a nice thing to do. We actually had a, a research, research reason. And the third is kind of an extension of both of these, is that you shouldn't waste people's time, and that's hopefully an obvious statement, but I'll explain what I mean. It means that if you can do your uh, task, so maybe it's galaxy classification or transcription of, uh, you know, extraction of uh, um, text from documents. If that can be done by computing, uh, computer m computed methods, then that would be a waste of people's time to ask people to do it. You shouldn't just do it because you haven't been bothered to try and do it in any other way. So it's not a kind of a catch-all way to just get work done. Um, it's also worth talking about why it's a good tool, actually. Crowdsourcing has some interesting um, characteristics in that Obviously, if you have a big enough crowd, you scale up, you can get lots of, lots of data analysed. But you also get accuracy. So we have um, three repeat transcriptions in old weather. We started out with five. And the quality of the transcriptions is enormously high. So in uh, climate science, they call this keying, uh, how many times has a record been keyed. So the kind of gold standard, if you're doing this commercially, is you get double keying. So it's seen by two separate people. Uh, and so we have triple keying, but it, it's, it's as good quality as, as, the, um, as, a, as a, you know, a professional keyer. But for something like galaxy classification, we can actually start to measure the, the kind of statistics of the quality of the classification, something you can't do when you only have an individual classifier. Um, there's education. People learn about astrophysics. People learn about the histories of the, of the ships or the climate research we're doing or, or exoplanets. Um, but I think it's important to say that we don't try and tell people stuff. Um, we didn't tell anybody what a galaxy was on Galaxy Zoo for four years. We just didn't explain it. And actually, I think that was originally an oversight, but then you're like, oh, no, we really meant to do that. We decided that actually, you know, uh, there were loads of places that will tell you about galaxies. So why should we try and explain what a galaxy is? Uh, you know, if you're already on our website and learning about uh, uh, or learning how to classify galaxies, the last thing you, you really need us to spend our efforts and, and, and time in, um, writing a poor article about galaxy morphology. Go and look on Wikipedia, there's a much better article. Um, so we don't try and educate people, but education is more passive, I think. Um, the, the, the fourth is serendipity, and I think probably the best example of that is, is this image. So this is, um, this is a galaxy, and this isn't. Uh, this is an image from the Hubble Space Telescope that was taken about six months ago. Uh, and this kind of sinister-looking green thing um, is, a, is an object called Hanny's Volvert. 
And I don't know if there's any Dutch speakers in the room, but Vorwerp is, so apologies for my pronunciation. It's kind of Dutch for object. Uh, and Hanny is Hanny van Arkel, a school teacher from the Netherlands. And she was on Galaxy Zoo and was presented with this image, which was in the Sloan survey. But there was this kind of fuzzy green thing in the bottom of the image. And she just went onto um, our forum and said, what, what's that? And everybody said, oh, I no, no idea. Just classify the galaxy, please, you know, move on. <laughs> um, it's probably an artifact of the, uh, of the image. And uh, nobody knew. So, you know, when you don't know, you just say it's probably not interesting. <laughs> but it turns out it's very interesting. Um, hence Hubble took an image of it. Uh, so the point is actually, so there's been, there are three research teams worldwide working on this object. Um, really interesting. Um, what's happened is um, there's these things called active galactic nuclei. In the middle of pretty much all galaxies, there's a large black hole. And so this galaxy is no different. And um, periodically, material falls into the black hole. And obviously, once it's gone in, it's gone. Actually, you really can't sort of see it falling in. But as it's being accreted around the black hole, it spins faster and faster and faster and gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And it actually becomes incredibly bright. And they call these active galactic nuclei. So you get a very bright uh, center to a galaxy that outshines the rest of the galaxy. And you get these jets coming off the black hole. And um, the exciting thing about this is that this one isn't shining. It's not, the AGN is not active now. They kind of flicker. They, and actually, you can, they can turn off for millions of years. But what we think has happened is these things are basically nearby. They're 100,000 light years apart, which is you know, pretty nearby in astronomical terms. And what's actually happened is in the last 100,000 years, the time it takes light to get from there to there, the AGN has turned off because this is just a hot gas cloud. Um, and so it's just glowing green just because of the color filters that they use on the telescope. So, but um, there's no stars in here, except that Hubble has picked up these. You can see these little orange nodules. These are actually stars forming in this object. Uh, and the paper that was most recently written was called The Death of the Nearest Quasar, which is, I think, quite a cool title. So the quasar was, and is another name for this. The quasar has died, has turned off, but only in the last 100,000 years. That's kind of cool, right? That's very, very unusual. And it's astronomically a unique object, as far as we know. We don't know of any, other in, any others in the local universe that are like this. So this is, but the point is that this object wasn't in the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. It had been imaged, but it hadn't been detected. It hadn't been flagged up as anything interesting. And the serendipitous thing here was that somebody looked at that image, and this is, I think, a very human trait, that, and said, well, what's the fuzzy green thing at the bottom? And, that, and that's, that's something that's very hard computationally to program for. Machines look for what you tell them to look for, uh, at the moment, anyway. Uh, and so, you know, this is one of the key benefits of crowdsourcing, is actually having people look at lots of logs. There's another great example in our forum, which, again, these are lots of shame stories on us, really. Um, these are called the Galaxy Zoo Green Peas, because they're small, round, and green. And they were so named by the, uh, 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 the Galaxy Zoo forum community. And again, these are... Um, we thought, well, Sloan, the, the, the survey said that these were stars because they're kind of small and point source looking. Um, but actually, people just got interested in these peas and they went pea collecting. Um, there's a message board with about 5,000 messages in it. And the first, you know, the somebody posts one of these peas and says, what is it? You know, funny green thing. And then an astronomer says, 
not interesting, obviously, predictably, but obviously it is. Um, and, um, and then there's cue loads of jokes, like give peas a chance, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. So bad, bad jokes for about a day or two. And then suddenly somebody says, actually, I found another one. And they started collecting these things. And it turns out um, that they're very interesting again. Um, they're actually the site of the highest star forming rate in the local universe. So they're actually, if you look at these with Hubble, so where you can actually resolve the structure, they're actually two galaxies merging. So they're actually compact, very compact mergers. So two small galaxies interacting and merging. And the green is actually, um, is actually a, a, um, just again an artifact of the, of the survey, but it's actually oxygen emission. So this is a signature of star formation. So these are, again, very, very interesting objects. Um, and most of the research that was done by our community, and again, this is why the P's was kind of discovered, was that people went from Galaxy Zoo to this page. This, is a, this was the survey page that astronomers made for each other um, around the Sloan instrument. And so this would be the image that we showed in Galaxy Zoo. But then this is all the information that was collected by the survey. So the color, the brightness in lots of different color bands, um, you know, when the image was taken, a spectrum of the... Of the, uh, of the galaxy. And the green peas were presented to us as a portfolio, with a portfolio of evidence as to why they were astrophysically interesting. And, and actually, you know, that's, 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 that really is citizen science. I mean, if there's, if there's a criticism to be made about maybe, uh, you know, people just inspecting images, clicking through maybe three or four images, are they doing citizen science or are they just providing data? Well, I think when you're going away and learning about spectroscopy and, and understanding star formation and colours of galaxies and um, uh, uh, presenting a portfolio of evidence. I, I think that's science by any, by any measure. I wanted to end on future directions, and, and I, I think this is where we're at now. We're thinking that Galaxy Zoo was a great tool for its time, and this isn't a story of how Galaxy Zoo is not not, not going to last, but this is this is an artist's rendition or a cab rendition. So here's a person. Um, this is the the next big telescope that's being built in astronomy. This is called the Large Synoptic Sky Telescope, and it's it's being built now. Uh, the mirror is made. Astronomers make the mirrors first because they're really hard to make. Um, but it's going to image the whole sky, northern sky, every three nights. So it's going to do video astronomy, which is terrifying. Um, this thing is going to produce billions of images of galaxies. So we had a million in Galaxy Zoo. Um, this is going to produce billions. We, we won't be able to do Galaxy Zoo with this survey. There will be too many images. So, so what do we do? So, so this raises questions as to what this kind of future role of citizen scientist is. This is, again, this is another telescope that astronomers have been building for about 10 years and will be done in another 10 years. This is called the Square Kilometre Array. This is a radio telescope. Again, just a, this is a possible design. They're just kind of trying to decide what to build. So here's a car here, right? So this is kind of a big thing. Um, but actually, it's really big. So it's either going to be in South... Well, it's either going to be in Africa. So the, com the core of the telescope is going to be here, but it's going to extend right across the African continent, or it's going to be in Australia. So you can see this is a big telescope. So there's going to be a station right down in there. Uh, in New Zealand. This is going to be the biggest telescope ever built. It's billions and billions of dollars. And again, data volumes that are just, just too large. So we can't be doing something as simple as asking people to just look at every image. It, it just doesn't scale. And so 
we need to think about what humans are good at that machines aren't good at. And I think there are a few things. Number one is training. So when we make algorithms for classifying images or classifying data, there's, there's lots of different techniques for this. There's these, uh, these machine codes that learn, basically. And almost always the best way to train a machine is with an existing classification that you know works. So these are, uh, these are just some uh, um, results of the movements of people's eyes when they're classifying a galaxy, right? So this is, this is an inexperienced classifier and an experienced classifier. So this is where the novice classifier looked when they were looking at the image. What you can see is that, for example, the, this is a spiral galaxy. The experienced classifier very, very quickly just says, OK, central bulge, two arms, done. Oh, no, maybe there's a faint, you know, is there another arm here? So they're just kind of probing. And you can see the, the inexperienced classifier's eyes just kind of roving over. But if you're trying to develop an algorithm for what the important characteristics of an object are, then knowing that you need to be able to kind of reproduce this pattern of analysis is, is really, really valuable when you're trying to program algorithms to do the same. So watching how humans interact with data is, is a very valuable way of training machines to do the same. The other thing is that humans are incredibly good at comparing things. So, so as an example, um, these are two spiral galaxies from Galaxy Zoo. I should have got a better one here. But the point is that there's an elongation here. We call this a galaxy bar. And these are the spiral arms here. And this is also, I think, probably got a bar somewhere here. But this bar is more obvious than that bar, I would say. And humans are terrible at putting things, at giving things absolute value. So this is why surveys that say rate 1 to 10 are just terrible, because everyone just says, well, about six, because you just say somewhere in the middle. Or amazing, you just you don't get a very good sampling. But humans are very good at saying, that's brighter than that one, or that's got a stronger bar than that one. So humans are very good at that. And of course, we know that humans are good at the serendipitous stuff, so finding unusual things. So, so the challenge, I think, in citizen science is how to scale up. How do we develop systems that basically make the best use of people's time in classifying galaxies. And, and, and probably one way to sort of demonstrate this is if the large synoptic sky telescope is noisy, huge amounts of data, and the next generation space telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, this is, you know, I don't know $15 billion or something ridiculous. This is expensive both in terms of putting it in space, but it's also only one telescope. You know, getting an observation with this instrument will be very hard. So anything you want it to do, you better be pretty sure that it's something interesting. So how do we survey lots of stuff and filter the interesting stuff for this instrument? So working out that, basically, that path is the hard bit. So, so here, these are our machines and these are our humans. And actually, there's lots of research going on. And we're doing a lot of work with uh, um, the machine learning group in Oxford and, uh, and, and, and in the US, actually working out how to best partner man and machine. And there's a, there's a, there's a relationship there, and actually just working that out is, 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 is a lot of work in itself. And there's a few things, and I, uh, they're probably a bit, um, bit, um, bit, a bit boring, actually. Um, but so one's called preference learning, and it's, and it's basically by saying to people, if you can identify a feature about a galaxy, so here, this is the bar, then just ask people to put things on a scale. So ask them to say, 
just rank them. So say, I've got these two images, the ones we saw before. Here's my scale. I know this one is further up than this one. So that's all, that's all you ask the human to do. And then the machines go and work out the kind of the classifications of other things. The other thing that's kind of particularly interesting in some of the research that's going on at the moment is a thing called active data selection. So this is uh, important when you have a very expensive, it's very expensive to make another observation. So you want to be really, really sure where you make your next observation because it might cost millions of pounds. So if you, you know, where would be the best point in time, for example, with a, with a, with a light curve to make that observation? And so, and, the, and there's another thing called classifier combination, which is this, this idea of machine classifiers and human classifiers and comparing them. And of course, we should be thinking about the abilities of the individual as well. So if we have this image, who should see it? Um, there's, there's, there's a huge amount of uh, thought and, and research got to go into this. So I think, I think going from Galaxy Zoo today, that's this kind of uh, uh, quite simplistic idea, really, or old weather where there's people just, just, just looking at all of the data, uh, you're relying on repeat transcriptions or classifications to measure the quality of your, your uh, results, that doesn't scale, uh, certainly within astrophysics. I'd like to finish on this plot um, because I think it's uh, a, a, a good, uh, good point about our, our how we spend our time as humans. This is uh, from a blog called Information is Beautiful, uh, which I'd encourage you all to, to visit. Um, this blue box is the 200 billion hours a year that the US population spends watching TV. And this is the 100 million hours it took to create all of the content on Wikipedia. So that's kind of scary. Um, in, on this plot, um, everything we've done with the Zooniverse and Galaxy Zoo would be smaller than a full stop. So it's just tiny amounts of time. And there's this idea called cognitive surplus. What do people do with their spare brain cycles? And, you know, a lot of it is obviously spent watching TV. And, and I think that fundamentally crowdsourcing and Galaxy Zoo is about trying to utilise just, just a small amount of people's time to, to, deliver, to deliver research. Um, and so, thank you. That's it. This event was recorded live on the 9th of June 2011 at the National Archives, Kew.